Now please remain standing and turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention, starting in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. I must admit that last week it was very hard to keep the sermon to merely verses 1 through 7, because verses 1 through 7 are intricately linked to verses 8 and 9. The people Peter is writing to, these people he calls his beloved in verse 1, they've been infiltrated by heretics, as we continue to see. And after describing them in great detail in chapter 2, Peter now shows the theological reasoning that these heretics had, refutes it, and gives an incredible revelation of the love of God here. Remembering this, first of all, yes, says Peter in verse 3, reminding them of the most important point to remember when it comes to false teachers and their teaching, that is, that in the last days these scoffers will come with scoffing, walking according to their own sinful desires. We heard this last week. That is, Christians are to always remember that our time, these last days that we are in, are days of combat, combat with scoffers, as 2,000 years of church history has borne out, in fact. Now, a man of the last days, as we all are, men of the last days, men and women, and as a man of the last day, Peter begins his offensive against these heretics now in verse 8 and 9. He turns to the content of their scoffing and refutes the supposed reason for their scoffing, which gives us Christians so much reason for worship of our great heavenly Lord and King, as we should find as we continue on. This is, in fact, I might also add, the only place in Scripture which answers the scoff of these scoffers directly. I remind you that this scoff is current even today, as Satan has not led up his attack for 2,000 years. Their scoff is about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They scoff, where is the promise of his coming? If it's taken so long, is he really coming, they ask. Remember, this is decades after Jesus went up into heaven. And an angel said of his return, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Acts 1, by the way. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. The question is, why is it that Jesus seems to tarry? What is behind this fact that Jesus promised to come back, but, in fact, has not yet come back? Our answer to this question is incredibly important. Broadly, there are three possible answers to this question. We will go through each one of these quite quickly, I hope, uh, 
focusing on the true one as we ought. The answer of the false teachers to this question of why Jesus, quote-unquote, tarries in his second coming is born of their rash reasoning. That is, if it doesn't come immediately, then it's not coming at all. They said that Jesus was mistaken in his coming. This is the first answer, although very wrong, that we might answer this question. What does, why does Jesus tarry? That is, Jesus is not back yet because he is not coming back. That is, they take his quote-unquote tarrying as proof that Jesus either lied or was mistaken in his promise. This is why the scoffers scoff and say, where is the promise of his coming? Speaking in a human way, as a fool, that is one possible answer. And Peter has already rejected that answer. Hasn't God said through Peter, by this same word of God, the heavens and earth that now existed are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's verse 7. The last verse of what we went over last week. No scoffers, Jesus is coming, and he's coming with fire and judgment. So says God. You will not be mistaken in his coming. He is not confused, and he was not lied to, and he did not lie. The judgment is coming, just as he promised, because Jesus, the great judge, is coming. This also answers a second heretical answer, the second answer that we see in Scripture to answer this question of his coming. Why does he tarry, quote-unquote? Some say he's already come and gone, and we're just left behind. We're people who have been left behind. That is, Jesus tarries because he has already come, the second answer. That is to say, generally, we got our timing wrong. His coming was past, and it's so subtle that we missed it. Jesus was not wrong in his promise, but we were mistaken, say this second answer, in our interpretation of the time of his coming. There are all kinds of interpretations like this, even today. Spiritual resurrections, non-material, psychological resurrections, what have you. They're all over the place, but Peter has just ruled them out. No, the day of his coming is not past, it is future, and it is a day of fire. That is, a physical day of fire. When it comes, it will not be ambiguous, whether it has come or not. You'll know Jesus has come. The whole universe will know, because it will be set on fire. The coming is future, and his coming will be known, because it will be known by fire. It cannot be mistaken. So that these first two are inaccurate, wrong answers to the question of why does it seem like he takes so long? So that the answer, the Christian, must be a third answer. Born of the word of God, the Old and New Testament. A third answer. Jesus is coming back, but in the future, in judgment through his son, just as he did with the flood. Jesus is coming with flames of purifying fire. The righteous will remain through those flames, and the wicked will burn like the world. And then, then will be the day of judgment, the day of his coming, and the wicked will perish. That is, here's the third answer. Jesus is not back yet because he is God, and he is not determined by time. It seems like it's a long time. But he is God, and he is not determined by time. 
Jesus coming in the future just as he promised, but that we cannot judge as to his timing. God will come to judge whenever he will come to judge. We cannot judge his timing because he is outside time. It is a nonsensical judgment to place upon the Lord. To quote a wise man, Jesus will arrive precisely when he means to. These are the questions that Peter is answering that must have been running through every Christian's mind for decades about the coming of Christ. And we don't seem to have this type of mind anymore. But this will give us some insight into the early church and their mind if we answer or and ask and answer the questions which must have been going through them. Why is it taken so long? Is Jesus trying to punish us? Is it that we're just too sinful and we need to be perfect ourselves? Then he will come back. Is Jesus in some kind of cosmic battle that unless we do something to help, he will lose? Is he losing now? Is his promise about a future second coming a real promise but in doubt? Is that why he's not coming back? Because he's having some difficulty in some other realm or any other number of type of questions like these, which are put into some type of uncertainty in the coming of Jesus' return. This was the kind of suspense that the early church was in, that these Christians were in, and they had some very good questions. It was the question that we have been asking ourselves, why is it not that our king is back? Is Jesus taking a long time? Is 2,000 years a long time, brothers and sisters? Are we to be worried that he's never coming back because it's been so long? Is the fact that he's coming, he hasn't come back yet, and it's been 2,000 years, a proof that he's not coming back? Peter does not apologize for Jesus and his timing in this passage, as if Jesus were a tardy guest, or as if Jesus does not value the people who wait on him. No, Peter simply says, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. What an absolutely incredible fact to reveal to us. What does this mean? It means that God, that time, is no obstacle to God. God is, in fact, outside time. This mysterious and beautiful fact is the first explanation of that third answer that we gave, that he is coming in the future. The explanation of the answer of Jesus' seemingly long time in coming and a refutation of the scoff of the scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? This is the first explanation and refutation that God is outside time. To show the value of this answer, let us ask the question again. Is 2,000 years a long time, or even a few decades a long time? How does Peter answer that question with, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is one day? Peter answers that a long time is a completely human, creaturely measure. Finite humans measure things. And finite human measures cannot be assigned to the infinite God. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Considering the mystery of the topic, Peter answers the absurdity of saying God takes a long time with an absurd question, seemingly saying this, How long is 2,000 years for God? 
Not only does this show that Jesus himself is God, but this is so mysterious and a glorious truth that we cannot understand it completely and must talk in analogies. To God, and this is an analogy, 2,000 years is not a long time, nor is one day a short time. No, rather, with the Lord, one day is at a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. To God, all time, this is another analogy, is like one present moment. There is no movement in God in time. Time is God's creation, which is so hard for us creatures to even grasp, and he is not determined by it. God created space, and he created time. He is not limited by space or time. God is everywhere, and God is every time. But on the other hand, he is in no specific address and no specific time as opposed to another. He is simply not confined by time or space at all. To be a creature is partly to be absolutely constrained by time and by space, and God has no such constraints. What does that mean? Let us consider ourselves for a moment how limited we are. We are, in fact, time travelers, all of us. The problem with our time travel is that we can only go forward in our time travel. One direction. We cannot go backwards or up or side, down, or any other way. We are terribly limited in our travel. We can only go forward in time and only at a very specific rate. We can't speed up or slow down time, and there is only a finite amount of time that we have on this earth. We are time-bound creatures, and we are so time-bound that we don't even think about it. We simply assume that time is a basic aspect of reality, but this is not the case, brothers and sisters. These false teachers had made that blunder. They had applied the constraints of time upon God himself as if it were ultimate reality. No, time is not the basic aspect of reality. God is above time. God is more basic than time. Time is only a basic aspect of our reality, our creaturely reality. And isn't this an amazing thing, beloved? Time is a created aspect of reality. God is not forced to go backward or forward or sideways or up or down in time. No, God is not a time traveler at all. That is part of what makes God, God. Peter says it this way about our glorious creator, the creator of time himself, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. How, in the face of such incredible being, such incredible gods, we have anything else but worship to do? How can we do anything else but worship in the face of this great God? This is the very definition of mind-boggling. We cannot contain this reality because we cannot contain the idea of an infinite God. Worship is the result of many things, but in this case we worship because we have as G.K. Chesterton notes, poked our heads up into the infinite clouds of God's glory. The unbeliever attempts to cram those clouds into his brain and so destroys himself in doing so, but the believer goes up and worships and marvels instead and continues to poke his head up into the clouds with wonder and amazement. 
with the Lord one day as a, as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Behold, beloved, the Lord your God, and a tiny ounce of God's infinite weight of glory, the mere corner of his garment, and yet we cannot even comprehend it. Your God is not confined by space or time. So I ask you this question after all this glorious examination of our great and glorious God. Is God late in his coming? I ask you this, brothers and sisters. Can a God outside of time be late? The very question is an absurdity. These scoffers have run so far from God that nothing of God but their human constraints remains. They look to God as if he were a mere human. And we often do this ourselves, do we not, brothers and sisters? We constrain God by our own assumptions that we think are ultimate reality. But God is not constrained by anything but himself and his own being. And this ought to be an encouragement to us, an encouragement to go to the word, as Peter has been encouraging these people and us all the while. But Peter does not stop at this revelation of the infinite being of God. He reveals something even more, a second explanation of why God, quote-unquote, tarries. Something incredible and marvelous for us to worship. He reveals a small part of the will of God toward man and the long-suffering and love of God towards men. He gives this second explanation of why it seems to take so long for Christians to see Christ. In his second coming. To the revelation of the infinite being of God, Peter reveals the next infinite love of God. Peter reveals part of God's plan in these our last days and explains this long, over 2,000 year wait, not only by describing God's being first, an aboveness to time, but verse 9, he describes God's reasoning with this word, patience. God takes what seems like us. To us creatures, his own time, for the sake of his love, to us humans. It is because God the Father in his sovereign, infinite wisdom and eternal love designed to bring in multitudes of humanity, of sinful humanity, that he patiently waited for thousands of years, that he might save a great multitude, including you and I. It is with a concern for us men and our salvation. The Lord extends his coming so far from the death of Christ and the ascension of Christ. The Father, in his infinite love, set the time of Christ's second coming beyond what we might set because he wishes that none should perish but that all should reach repentance. Putting what Peter says in the negative and the positive. God is not slow. God is patient. God is patient that we might be saved and that through his love we might bless humanity as salt and light. Here we see the way of salvation shown in black and white. It is God's way of salvation through repentance. The perishing and destruction of verses 6 and 7 are set in stark contrast to the repentance of verse 9. They are opposites. The person who perishes does not repent. The person who repents does not perish. Perishing and repentance are opposites. He who repents has life. He who does not repent has death. So that Peter is being utterly plain and clear. Repent of your sins that you might be saved 
from death in Christ's death. Repent and have faith in Christ and you will be saved. Repentance is often used in scripture as a shorthand for the entire way of salvation. It's quite obvious why. He who repents of his sin is already supernaturally changed by God and will have faith in the Lord. None but the poor in spirit can repent and believe, and none but those changed by God can be poor in spirit to be able to repent. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin of our new nature, the activity of our new nature. But is Peter somehow saying that Jesus' love triumphed over God the Father's wrath, as some might say in these things? Some people go to the cross as if Christ's love triumphed over the Father's judgment. As if the Father did not love us until Christ's sacrifice. Mysteriously, this is not the case. No, the love of God, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, predates in eternity. The love of humans, of sinful humans, predates in eternity the accomplishment of our salvation. John 3.16 comes to mind. For God, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so loved the world that he, the Father, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Before there was Christ's work on the cross, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loved us. This passage does not prove that Jesus had love and the Father had wrath, some opposite it proves that love came first. That is, God, the triune God, loved us, then accomplished our salvation. God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so in his love, he sent his son. This passage proves our salvation comes from the love of God. That is the bottom of our salvation. It is from the love of God, and is accomplished through the work of the triune God. We see the very heart of God on display here, his infinite, eternal love, which boggles the mind just as much as his being does. This patience is far more incredible when we understand what he is being patient toward. He's being being patient towards us, brothers and sisters. He's being patient toward those people who return to their vomit. He's being patient even towards false teachers as long as they repent of their false teaching. He's being patient towards horrible sinners. And I am convinced that if people were to know the sin that we keep secret, none of us would keep any company with other people. And yet the Lord loves us. He shows us the heart of a Christian to be patient in these things. Notice that Peter has been talking about the false teachers as if they were among their number. The y'all he uses here in verse 9, the objects of his patience. He says in 2 Peter 2, 20 through 21, incredibly, they, the false teachers, have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they have known the way of righteousness. These are the false teachers that he's speaking about. They had gained some blessing from Christ's work. They indeed had. But unless they repent, it will fall short of the blessings 
which only Christians, those people defined by repentance and faith, can enjoy, including a right relationship with God, which is salvation itself through Christ. And more must be said on this, especially on how the desires of God relate to the salvation of sinners, but this sermon already would be too long if I were to include that. However, what we can learn from this is the love of God is extended even to those people that even to us seem the most unworthy. It is extended to even the most seemingly unworthy of sinners if they repent and believe. Even heretics who sin against the knowledge they have and the gifts that God has given them in their lives. God is patient even toward these scoffers. He desires their salvation, and God had done them good and has done them good. Are we like God, brothers and sisters? Do we desire to benefit even our enemies? Do we desire to give them the gospel of free grace? Have we become so encapsulated into our own bubble that we have forgotten that we once were far off from God like our enemies are far off? And still in sin, even now, against everyone around us. Have we forgotten that we are defined by the love of God and repentance? Do we have the love of Christ who, while we were still sinners, died for us? Romans 5.8. This is what Second Peter 3 is saying, brothers and sisters. This is our age. It is the age of repentance and faith, just as much as it is the age of the apostate and the age of the scoffer. It is the age of God's love toward the unworthy and our love toward the unworthy, like you and I, the age of God's patience toward sinners. It is the age of the breaking in of a kingdom that is not of this world. Men and women changed by the sovereign love of God, a kingdom of Christ's righteousness for righteousness' sake, which are destined to be salt and light to the world around us, to our enemies, especially when their enemies have done them wrong. We repent of our sin and have faith in Jesus Christ. Have we loved our enemies at all? If we have loved them, have we loved them like God has loved us and was patient toward us when we were still his enemies? If we have loved them, have we loved them like God who gave his most precious gift that he might save them from their own sins? Or have we loved our sins so much that we do not have time for others? Have we let the sin of other people define how we treat them? Or are we, like God, letting our love define our actions? The love of God placed within us define our actions, even to our own enemies. Have we even reciprocated the love of God unto God who waited for his son to return, that we might come into his eternal kingdom of repentance and faith? The coming king of righteousness is not slow, brothers and sisters, and indeed could come at any time. Let us finally never forget that our salvation comes from God's love alone. If he is willing to wait for us, if he is willing to be patient with us and every sinner on earth for the sake of his elect, if he is willing to bring us to repentance, if he is willing to send his one and only son for our salvation, then what will he not do For our benefit. God's love and God's patient wisdom show in every sovereign choice for our lives. 
so that if God loves us, then we, his repentant people of faith, will conquer every sin and every obstacle that is in our way until we shine with the love of God in the kingdom of righteousness. Let us confess until our king of righteousness surely comes, whenever that day may be, from the patience and loving kindness of God that in these and all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us go to our great God in prayer. O our loving Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy loving Patient will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you for your gracious sovereign will and love to choose for yourself a people from the mass of corruption which sin has created. And your once great image bearers are the humans that you have put upon this earth. How wondrous you are, eternal, infinite, unchangeable, above God, or above time, our God. And yet condescended to take upon yourself a human nature. Wonder upon wonder that you would save us even though, even through the giving of your own son, even though we are sinful, even though we have been so sinful against you, you save even the worst of sinners. Lord, we know that through repentance and faith we are reconciled unto you by the work of Christ Jesus that through Christ Jesus, the love of God is given unto the entire world, that they might partake in it, if it is your sovereign will that they do so. We thank you for this, Lord, that you gave us every gift that we need to be your people. And you have given us every gift in your love, in your patience, to bring us to that great day of redemption. Guard us by faith, we pray, O Lord. Guard us by the word that you have done, the promises that you have made. Be glorified, O Lord, through your goodness, your love, your patience, and how we glorify you in our worship of these things and of all the things that you have done for us in all of history. Glorify yourself, we pray. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>